All right, I warned you earlier in the service, we're going to go to Ezra, the book of Ezra and the first chapter. We're also, in a few minutes, going to turn to Haggai, which is the third from the last book in your Old Testament. There are 39 in the Old Testament. This is book number 36, okay? Haggai. Uh, we're going to kick off a series of messages today, and I wanted to take the very first one and just lay a little groundwork. Um, I'm not much of a historian when it comes to the Bible, but I do love Old Testament history. I love the stories of the Old Testament. I've told you on many occasions that if you want the story of the Old Testament or the Old Testament narrative, you only have to read the first 17 books, okay? The first 17 books basically kind of lay out the chronology of the Old Testament. The first 17 books tell the story. They they establish a timeline, and, and if you'll take the time to read those 17 books, you will be reminded of some of the best stories you ever learned in Sunday school. One of those books is the book of Ezra. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are side by side in your Old Testament, and they actually run concurrently with one another. The story of Ezra bleeds over into the story of Nehemiah and vice versa. It is very, very important to me that you understand where in time and the circumstances surrounding Ezra and Nehemiah, where all this takes place so that as we go through this book and tell you the story, uh, the pieces will fit together in a very strong and, and powerful way. Uh, the Old Testament demonstrates one major thing about God. It is that he is relentless in his pursuit to reclaim his people. If, if you don't get anything from this, this series, and I'm I'm sure you will, but I want to make sure you get this main point. The Old Testament tells this story over and over and over again in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different settings and circumstances, following our failure or Israel's failure, distraction and sin, God still wants to reclaim us as his own. This message is repeated over and over and over again throughout the stories of the Old Testament. I haven't read the book of Ezra in probably four or five years. In the past couple of weeks, as we delved into this, I've enjoyed kind of reacquainting myself with the Old Testament plot line and Ezra's place in it. In fact, if I were to lay this out for you and just call it the Old Testament plot line, which reflects God's relationship with Israel, the entirety of the Old Testament revolves around this main theme. We all begin with Genesis chapter 12 and a man by the name of Abraham. Uh, God pursued Abraham, chose Abraham to be the father of his special people group, a special nation called Israel. In Genesis chapter 15, for instance, God promises Abraham that through your line of descendants, I, the creator, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world. Of course, he's talking there about Jesus Christ. The uh, Bible continues and the narrative continues with an up and down relationship between God and his people, mostly down, sadly, because the routine and the, the mundane repetition of life. Uh, God never worked fast enough for Israel in the Old Testament, just like he rarely works fast enough for me, and maybe you could say the same thing. Uh, in around 1000 BC, David and his son Solomon are two of the most powerful and prominent kings Israel would ever know. In fact, David for sure was the most powerful. David took the kingdom to a new height. Under King David, who was incidentally the second king after Saul of Israel, every kingdom in the world knew of Israel. Uh, 
Government kings, leaders traveled from around the globe to see and witness for themselves this, this powerful kingdom known as God's nation of Israel. Solomon was the one, if you recall, who in the Old Testament actually built the, king, or built the temple that would eventually be destroyed, and we'll talk more, more about that in a moment. And this place was unbelievably magnificent. This temple was considered to be the dwelling place of the one true God, and its architecture and the materials with which it was uh, constructed reflected that very belief and that very reality. Now, under the kingdom of David and Solomon, the kingdom is thriving, but Solomon's son, in conjunction with another government official, decide the best course for the kingdom after the death of Solomon is to divide the kingdom into an upper kingdom and a lower kingdom. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, the upper kingdom was called Israel, and there are many of the prophets in the Old Testament that were Israel-specific, and the lower kingdom is called Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem. And again, there were many prophets in the Old Testament that were Judah-specific. After the kingdom divided, she was never, ever the same. In fact, if you fast forward to the year 586 BC, after the nation had divided a short 400 years or so after, Israel is now completely gone, and Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, have now fallen to the Babylonians, all right? So stop and think about, the, stop and think about this. Do the math in your head. You're talking about... Less than 500 years, the kingdom goes from its strongest position in the world to its absolute weakest position in the world. And 586, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, that is the time period in which we have the story of Daniel and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For they were all exiled under Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. So for 70 long years... Babylon is the major power in the world of the day. Israel is no longer. Israel is gone, and Judah has now fallen and is living in exile under Babylon. At some point, Persia takes over the, the uh, Babylon, and now Israel or Judah remains in, in exile to Persia. The kings have changed, but the reality of their lives, the lives of God's people have not. But something big is about to happen, as we'll read in a moment. God, being sovereign in authority overall, touches the heart and mind of the Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus decides to let all the Israelites return to their homeland. And when they return, Ezra is responsible for rebuilding their temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. And Nehemiah is responsible for rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we've I've stumbled across a little video that kind of tells part of this story, and so I thought I'd share it with you to kind of lay the groundwork for the history of the book of Ezra. Check this out. Before the Israelites left Babylon, the king of Persia, who had overthrown Babylon, decided to help them rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem. He organized people from all over the land to give livestock and supplies to the Israelites. He even returned all of the gold and silver that the Babylonians had stolen from the temple. 50,000 Israelites returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the altar of the temple, then laid the foundation for the building itself. 
Before the temple was even finished, the Israelites began to offer sacrifices and worship God in it once again. But other countries surrounding Jerusalem began to worry about the Israelites regaining power. So they sabotaged the rebuilding project, and it came to a standstill for 16 years. But God used two men, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the Israelites to resume building the temple and not to be afraid of their enemies. So they continued building, strengthened by the prophet's words. The opposition continued. This time from a man named Tatanai, the governor of a nearby region. He wanted to stop the Israelites from building and worked to convince the Persian king, Darius, to stop the Israelites. Not only did King Darius not stop the rebuilding project, he threatened Tatanai and anyone else who would try to stop the temple from being rebuilt, that he would kill them. Then he made Tatanai give funding, animals, and supplies to the Israelites. So the work continued, and almost 70 years after it had been destroyed, the Israelites finished rebuilding the temple. They dedicated it by sacrificing hundreds of animals to God and returning the priests back to their positions of leadership in the temple. God was once again worshipped in Jerusalem. Look at Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, in the first year of King of Cyrus, King of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved on the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Okay, now again, remember, this is the same King Cyrus in Daniel chapter 10 that was moved by the faith of Daniel, uh, being spared the lion's den and turned around and threw all of Daniel's critics into the lion den. It's the same King Cyrus. Uh, This man was probably moved on some level by the faith or the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then Daniel. But you notice at the end of verse one, it says, in order to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah, 100 years before any of this happened, foretold that it was coming. Jeremiah said a hundred years before Ezra, Nehemiah, Babylon, Persia, Cyrus, before any of that occurred, Jeremiah foretold that God's nation would fall, that Babylon would rise to power, and for 70 years, Israel would remain exiled in Babylon, and after that, they would be able to return home. What's interesting to me about this, and don't miss this, Cyrus was not a follower of God like Abraham or Moses or David. When we read that that God moved in Cyrus's life and caused him to make this decision or this proclamation that we're going to send you guys home and let you rebuild your homeland, this is God's sovereignty on display for all of us to witness. Uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but... World leaders around our globe do not frighten or threaten the sovereign God of Scripture. God can touch the king. God can touch the president. God can touch the leader anytime he chooses to do so. That is, on, that is demonstrated for us uh, in Ezra chapter 1. Look at verse uh, 2. Keep reading. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, don't make the mistake of assuming that because Cyrus calls God the Lord of heaven, that again, he is a follower of the God of Abraham. That's not the case. Cyrus, much like our universalists today, believed in many gods. This just happened to be the Jewish God or the Israeli God or the Hebrew God. Verse number three, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Verse four, and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So notice, Cyrus is not only going to allow them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, he has instructed everyone in his kingdom to help them, to assist them. If they're traveling through your neighborhood and you have means and it's a, you have a way of assisting them, then give them, I'm commanding you, give them the silver, give them the gold, give them what they need to make this incredible, incredible journey. Skip down to verse 7. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out, of the, brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away when, from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God. In other words, Cyrus said, here, you're going to want all this stuff back, all this stuff that was in your temple when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took it for himself. We're going to give all of this back to you. Verse number eight. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought to Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. So all of these articles, pieces of silver and gold, part of the identity, the rich spiritual heritage of Israel are now returned to them. This is a very generous movement on behalf of King Cyrus. Skip down to verse 11. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazzar brought all these along with uh, the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, you got to realize, put yourself in the people's shoes at this point, these people are fired up. I mean, 70 years of exile, it's over. 70 years of their heritage being forgotten, their identity as a people group being covered over by Babylon. 70 years in a strange culture with a strange language with strange um, um, history and record regarding another people group. We're just existing without anything of our own. After 70 years of this, everybody gets to go home. Everybody's fired up because I'm sure on the way they're talking about, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I can't wait to get back and see this place. And I can't back, wait to get back and visit that landmark. This is a high time for God's people. They are fired up. But if you know the story, they didn't stay that way. They didn't stay fired up for very long. Like us, they were distracted. As a matter of fact, if I were to give you an outline of the book of Ezra, here's what it would look like. The first two chapters, as we just read part of chapter one, cover the return home. We're fired up. We're going to rebuild our community. We're going to rebuild our temple. God has taken us back up to the top, all right? But the third chapter reveals construction got started, but then notice chapters four, five, and six, construction was delayed. And what a lot of people don't realize 
is in this return home, there wasn't just one return, there were two returns. Because the last three chapters, excuse me, four, seven, eight, nine, and ten, the last four chapters reveal that Ezra actually returned to Jerusalem with a second phase of people, a second wave of workers, and then and only then did God's temple actually get built. Enter a young prophet by the name of Haggai. Now, I don't know how much you know about Haggai, but as I told you a moment ago, his book is the third from the last in the Old Testament. Haggai, who was a contemporary of both Ezra and Nehemiah, was a spokesperson for God. You see, many of those Old Testament prophets in the latter part of your Old Testament, they were spokesmen for God to a king or spokesmen for God to a a people group. As a matter of fact, many of the major and minor prophets in the latter part of your Old Testament were either Israel, northern kingdom specific, or Judah, southern kingdom specific. Haggai was a southern kingdom specific spokesperson for God. That's what prophets were. Men like Isaiah, men like Ezekiel, uh, men like Haggai, men like Malachi. We're talking about people who spoke on behalf of God to anyone who would listen. And if you know the narrative of the Old Testament, most often God's people did not listen. The first prophet, incidentally, was a man by the name of Samuel. Samuel was the prophet to King Saul. Samuel actually chose David to be the next king of Israel. And the last prophet was believed to be Malachi. That's why his book appears last in your Old Testament. During a 500-year period, from David to here, Ezra, the prophet was the mouthpiece of God. Haggai, in his book, delivers a message on priorities. Haggai enters the scene after the people have been fired up, they've returned home, but now the work has ceased on God's temple. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 1. Look at verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, talking about Israel, say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, wait a minute. That was the whole reason that God sent them home, was to rebuild their house, to reclaim his people, and for the people to reclaim their identity as the chosen nation of God. But Haggai is shaking his finger in their face, saying, your actions aren't backing up your words because what you're doing is you're saying, yeah, God sent us down there to rebuild the temple, but we've decided that now's not the time to rebuild the temple. The time has not yet come. You say you want to rebuild. You say you want to recapture your identity, but you're not rebuilding. As I said a moment ago, the message of Haggai is a message on priorities. There's one main reason the people lost their focus and the building ceased. It's the same reason we lose our focus. One main reason, despite our best intentions, despite our plans that we made earlier, there's one main reason we lose our way. And here it is, distractions. Why did the people, fired up as they were, we're going to go build this temple and reclaim our heritage. Why did they stop? because they were distracted. An opportunity came along for them to make more money, and the work ceased. An opportunity came along for them to improve their houses, their farms, their ranches, and so the work for God ceased. 
An opportunity came along for them to enjoy more entertainment, quality, titillation, action, experience, activity, and they were distracted and the work ceased. The routine, and if there's anybody that despises routine, it's me. I love change. I love things to change. I love to work one way and then decide to go another way. That's important to me. That's part of my psyche. Maybe you're like that. I don't like routine, the monotony, the mundane, but when the routine becomes mundane, we begin to convince ourselves of things like, well, God's just taking too long. Uh, Maybe, maybe I was incorrect when I decided that was what was important to God and I should go after it. Have you ever done that? You know that whenever it was, you were convinced this is the road and I'm going to travel it. I'm going to walk it. But it's taken so long. It's taken, it's been so difficult. You start scratching your head wondering, well, maybe I was wrong back there when I decided that this was the road after all. Maybe this is not the road after all. The routine becomes mundane. We're in a search for happiness more so than a search for God. We are seeking fulfillment now. Solomon calls all those things, good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. He calls them folly. And he calls us fools when we're willing to sacrifice what is permanent on the altar of what is immediate. That was the people's problem in the days of Ezra and Haggai. They were distracted from what truly mattered most. Pick up reading again at verse three. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, the temple, remains a ruin? In other words, you finished your houses top to bottom. They're paneled on the inside. You didn't just dry them in to get by. You didn't just set up the barn. You've expanded your farm. You've expanded your business. You've put all of your effort, all of your attention in what makes you comfortable, in what satisfies you in your situation. And while that's all happening, the house or the the temple of God lays in ruin. Verse five. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Watch this. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. This is a message that appears multiple times throughout the book of Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. It's a good reminder for all of us to be intentional in our faith walk. Jesus said the very same thing. Remember? How many times did Jesus said, stop, consider your life. Stop, count the costs. Stop, think this through. Paul comes along in the book of Ephesus, Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, and he says, be very careful how you live. Along comes the apostle Peter, and Peter says, be sober-minded, be vigilant in how you live. Haggai, 2,500 years ago, reminded God's people of something we need to be reminded of, which is, again, verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. Now, why in the world is a statement like that in the Bible? And why is it repeated a variety of different ways on multiple occasions? The answer is pretty simple. The statements in the Bible, God gives us the instruction to be careful or to consider how we live because we tend not to, because we tend to forget, because it's in my nature 
to leave behind the routine and chase something new. Verse 5 is as relevant to them 2,500 years ago as it is today to you and me. Give careful thought to your ways. Remember when Jesus said, you know, what good is it if a man gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? What is he saying there? He's saying, be careful how you live. He's saying, give careful thought to your ways. What good is it if I build a business, build a name for myself in this community, but I lose the respect of my family? What good is that? What good is it if I give my children everything I never had when I was their age, but it costs me my marriage in doing so? What good is it if I give away my body to anyone who tells me they love me, if it means I never experience true love and satisfaction in a deep, lasting, and committed way. You see, all of these things, by the way, some of them really good, some of them not so much, all of these things are futile without some sort of deeper meaning, some sort of elevated purpose. We understand that we need to give careful thought to our ways because the reality check comes in the very next verse, verse 6. He says, you have planted much, but you've harvested little. Now, he's saying, stop for a minute, pause. You've been here a while now. You came here with one purpose, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish your identity. I have reclaimed you as my own, but think about what's happened since you've been here. The first thing he points out is, you've planted a lot, but you've reaped very little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're still not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Multiple examples he gives there, again, that are every bit as relevant today in our culture as they were 2,500 years ago in theirs. He's saying when you lose sight of God's big thing, whatever that is, when you lose sight of God's big thing, you work, but you can't seem to get ahead. You try, but you don't make as much progress as you thought you should. He's giving them a reality check, just like we could give ourselves a reality check. With all our busyness, with all our activity, with all our energy, with all our money, with all our... list goes on and on and on. How many of us live lives identical to the one described in verse 6? Jesus echoed that very same principle multiple times over and over and over. We wonder why we work so hard, but we never seem to get anywhere. I have had countless people tell me, I make more money now than I've ever made in my life, and yet it seemed much easier $40,000 ago, $80,000 ago, 30. It was easier to pay my bills when we were first married and both of us broke than it is now, making 10 times what we made back then. That's a life that's distracted. That's a life that's missed the mark. You see, lives that are built on proper priorities, lives that are willing to think things through, they're lives that are potentially rich and full, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how busy you are or as hard as you work. You see, we need to stop. And like verse 5 says, we need to give careful attention to our ways. If not, if not, look at the sober warning in verse 9. You expected much, but see, 
it turned out to be so little. That scares me to death. The, the picture is this. God had a plan, a big thing. You're going to rebuild my temple. In doing so, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to elevate you as my people. But the people lost sight of that goal. They lost sight of that priority. They were distracted. They let years and years go by before work continued. So much so that by the time that second wave of workers came in, the foundation of the temple was covered in grass, new growth. They had to redo it all. And at the very end of this chapter, not the very end, but the middle, chapter 1, verse 9, the bottom line is this. You came here fired up, man. You expected much, but it turned out to be so little. But then, even then, and this is what blows me away, in spite of these people, in spite of us, God still wanted to keep his promise. In fact, again, back to the main point. Following our failure, following distraction, our sin, God still wants to reclaim us as his own. That is the message of the book of Ezra. And as we unpack this over the next several weeks, you're going to see yourself. 2,500 years ago, a people group existed, led by a man named Ezra, and they're no different than you and I. Let's pray. Father in God... I'm embarrassed and ashamed to admit how often I'm just ready to move on. How often I think you're dragging your feet. You're taking too long. Father, forgive me. Forgive us for being so easily distracted. I pray, God, that you will show us what matters most, that you'll simplify our lives. We can set our eyes on a handful of things that you deem important, and we can trust you to take care of the rest. Father, may more money, may bigger homes or stronger businesses or more quality entertainment, may, may none of that ever distract us from the calling that you've put, placed upon our lives as followers of your son. In his name I pray it. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. I mean that. I'll see you next time. Go out and make it a great week.